When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Live, live, live. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing Live Edition on YouTube. I'm Jack Farley, joined by Real Vision Managing Editor, Ed Harrison. Ed, how are you doing? Good, yeah. I think uh, this is the first time we're doing it live that's not a Friday, so this is pretty exciting. Exactly. And this is actually starting a new trend for us. Every single day, uh, the, the Daily Briefing will be live from now on. We like to make big moves. Speaking of big moves, Ed, what did you make of the action in the market today? Yeah, so I think the action in the markets was sort of lackluster. It was just uh, markets sloshing around a bit. If I had to uh, pick a direction, I would say that the market seemed to be moving still very much in line with where rates are going. You know, uh, we backed off the highest rate of the U.S. 10-year, uh, which was 177. And now we're trading about 160. If you looked earlier in the day, the 10-year was down like four basis points, and markets were doing relatively well. Uh, they were starting out the, the day fairly well. As the day went on and the 10-year started to fade uh, and yield started to back up a little bit, then the markets were a little bit more uneven. With the NASDAQ, the worst of the three, uh, the S&P second, and then the the Dow doing the best. And that's how it ended with the Dow doing the best. So, you know, if I had to say that there's a toggle in terms of the way that we're thinking about the markets right now, it still would be interest rates. And I think that we're in a largely Goldilocks environment from an interest rate perspective in that we're not seeing a massive backup in rates. And that has that's supportive, especially for uh, the long duration assets, the the most high beta assets, where you have a lot of the cash flow in uh, you know years that are are distant. Yeah, I like to think of interest rates sort of like the financial gravity for money, and it's that rate that really affects the valuation of every single asset class under the sun. Ed, could you explain? to the people at home why interest rates are so important for those long-duration assets that you say, um, but also short-duration assets like energy. Why is it that the NASDAQ is more sensitive than, let's say, the Dow? Yeah, because uh, it's really uh, about the DCF. I think maybe it was Holger Shapitz uh, who I saw saying it's the DCF stupid when rates were going up in Q1. And that really what he was saying is, is it's the discounted cash flow model, which is uh, when you take a look at cash flows over a, a period of time, say five years, 10 years, 20 years, the money that you get in 20 years is not worth as much as the money you get today. And that's discounted back by the interest rate. So if the interest rate's higher than the discount rate that you give to money a year out and then two years out compounded, three years out compounded even more is less than the money that you give out uh, when interest rates are lower. So uh, those companies that aren't making a whole lot of money now, but will make a lot of money later because they're really high growth companies, most of their cash flows are in the future. And so when the interest rate goes up, they're much more affected because of that, uh, that discounted cash flow model. Whereas the energy companies where they're sucking uh, energy out of the ground today, most of their cash flows are up front. Those are, are not as well affected because their cash flows are not discounted as much because they're very near term. So, Ed, over the past two months, interest rates have kind of been trapped in this range. You're right, they backed up from the highs that they made, but they haven't gotten past those highs, nor have they really, have we seen a, a true reversal? I'm thinking of the 10 year and the 30 year. How do you make sense of the equity price action? In light of those moves in the rates, so, you know, obviously it's hard to say regarding because we've had earnings and there's so much other economic data. But what do you what do you made of the equity price action of the past two months? Well, you know, I think equities were overextended, 
and uh, they were due for a pause. Uh, we haven't had a correction, a major correction in a, in a very long time. And so there's that vulnerability. But Jay Powell has been saying, look, I know you guys think that I'm going to look at the economy and I'm going to uh, sit, I'm going to start uh, tapering a, um, asset purchases uh, or, you know, and eventually we're going to start raising rates a little bit sooner. But no, we're not going to. And I think the fact that he said that has stopped cold this 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 trend upward in in interest rates, and that's given equities a bit of a pause. That's allowed equities uh, their valuations to catch up, uh, or their uh, to the earnings to catch up to the valuations. So what it means is 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 that a stretched market that had gone up like ninety percent for the Nasdaq in a year's time is now able to to uh, trade sideways a little bit. And and then we'll just have to see what happens after this. So this is as good as it gets for right now. And uh, the question is, is what's the price action later? And I'm still thinking that the toggle is going to be interest rates. I'm also still thinking that there's another leg up, that the bond vigilantes are going to have another go at front running the Fed if we get really good economic data uh, and, and at the same time have in, uh, inflation that's relatively high. Those two will combine to really uh, cause people to rethink whether or not the Fed will will hold the line and 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 not uh, move up its timetable for asset purchase uh, tapering. So it's rosy economic data that can be a catalyst for another rise in rates. Uh, with that, Ed, what did you make of the the PMIs today? What have you been making of the economic data that's been coming in real time out of the economy? I think the economic data that I've seen coming out of the economy has generally been good, uh, irrespective of you know what individual data points are that we get. I think that if you look at it holistically, that the numbers have been uh, very good. Uh, the PMI that came out today uh, was 60.5. Anything over, say, the high 50s is uh, you know just a uh, really nice number. So that was a good number. The ISM manufacturing new orders index was 64.3. Uh, you know, the, the previous was 68, but still 64.3 is good. I would note, however, that uh, the ISM manufacturing number was only 60.7, which was down from 64.7 uh, in April, and expectations were for 65. So, you know, that was a bit soft. And on top of that, we also got the ISM manufacturing prices that were 89.6, which is really high. And they were higher than last uh, month, and they were higher than expectations. So that combination is uh, pro-inflation uh, with, at the same time, a bit of a underwhelm in the manufacturing side. So, I mean, the, the numbers that we saw today were not really uh, that great. But in the global context, I think that the U.S. numbers have been good. And, you know, with the Europeans coming out of lockdown, I think globally, uh, we're, we're going to see some relatively good numbers as well. Yeah, Ed, what struck out to me is that the PMIs continue to get better. So you noted an outlier in the services. But for most of the PMIs, they are close to, if not at, all-time highs. And what's important to remember is that a PMI above 50 just means that it's the economy is growing relative to last year's last time's reading. Uh, and below 50, it means that it's contracting. So the PMIs um, being at you know, not all-time highs, but uh, um, relative local highs over the past year, that means that the economy is, is growing faster now than it was in May when we were emerging from the absolute depths of the lockdown. So that, to me, has a lot of meaning. Yeah, so I think that the numbers overall are good. And when you look at it just from a, um, a um, expectations perspective, we're in a very good stead in terms of expectations. I think that economists are trying to catch up to the numbers, and eventually they will catch up. Uh, but right now, I think expectations are lower than the numbers overall in the U.S. economy. And I expect uh, a catch up from Europe, as I was saying. Where I, I I have some problems, I think, are emerging markets in Asia, and I think that's in particular because of the vaccination progress. Uh, you know, some of these uh, mutant viruses. We know places like Brazil. I also know Uruguay. 
We've seen uh, some uh, mild tick ups in uh, places in, in um, Asia. Some of the places like the Philippines are doing really poorly. So all of that said means that they're still sort of going through the pandemic in a way that could suppress their economic data overall. So, I mean, if I did look at it globally, I would say that uh, we're getting into a very good period economically right now. Okay, that's great. Uh, Ed, by the way, Jan V comments, that's some nice clickbait. I assume that Jan is referring to the title, which is Warren Buffett on Stocks and Inflation. So, by the way, Jan, not, not at all clickbait. You came to the right place. We will be discussing Warren Buffett's comments from the uh, uh, Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting over the weekend. So much to dig in there. And I know you, you've been uh, very busy today reading, reading other news, but I've had a little bit of time to do a little bit of a deep dive. Um, Ed, before we move on to that, is there anything else you want to discuss? No, you know, uh, I, I, the way I would set it up, by the way, in terms of Buffett is, you know, a lot of people have written him off as a as an old guy uh, and that he's lost his touch and so forth. And we can talk about that. But I still look at Warren Buffett as one of the greatest investors. He's much more of a market timer than people would give him credit for. And I think we can discern some thoughts about you know, how value investors are thinking, you know, what does it say about the overall market based upon what he said at his annual meeting and how his investments have done and how his company's doing. Absolutely. Uh, so, Ed, how about I just give the, the rough facts of what Berkshire reported and then we can get into it. So, okay. the net earnings that were attributable to uh, Berkshire Hathaway shareholders was uh, $11.7 billion. That actually is not a super good metric, as Warren Buffett will be the first to tell you, because it includes the gains or losses on particular securities. So, you know, its portfolio could be up three percent a day, and suddenly it's reporting two billion dollars in in earnings. What what actually matters is the operating income, and for operating income, that really key value, uh, they reported nine billion dollars. Um, another key highlight is that they uh, hold. Um, $145 billion worth of cash and cash equivalents. That's the highest it's ever been. So really building up a war chest. And I want to get into that later. But that amount of capital, again, it's just cash and treasury bills, which is a cash equivalent, 22% of the market cap of Berkshire, Ed. Yeah, that is a ton of stuff. I mean, you know, right before we came on, I was taking a look at the kinds of things that I want to talk about with regard to Berkshire. And I have a eight. Uh, a list of eight. Let me tell, go through them with you, and hopefully we'll hit all of them. One is share buybacks. I, would, I definitely want to talk about the increased pace there. Uh, two, I want to talk about the fact that Berkshire is a conglomerate and whether or not that has any meaning in terms of you know how Berkshire is valued. The third is what does uh, Warren Buffett say about value investors? The fourth is an interesting thing. It's sort of related to what you and I and Ash were talking about on Friday with regard to Apple as sort of the new value investor uh, um, stock, uh, you know, the Fang M. Uh, I'm thinking about Apple instead of Coke in, in terms of Warren Buffett. What's the new Coke for Warren Buffett uh, these days? Is it Apple? And then I want to talk about the bank stocks. Um, I want to talk about the size of, of, of what of Warren Buffett and um, Berkshire Hathaway, whether that has any meaning in terms of whether they're underperforming. And then finally, his market timing new, as well as whether he's gotten it wrong from a market timing perspective. So a lot of stuff to cover there. Yeah, let's let's get into that. Starting with share buybacks. So they did about uh, $6.5 billion for the first quarter of 2021. That was actually slightly less than the Q3 and Q4 of last year, but you're correct in that it is a continued, uh, in, in a long-term horizon, it is much, much, much more uh, buybacks than they have, have um, historically done. Yeah, and you know, I don't know uh, what uh, is uh, responsible for his change of view in terms of buybacks. There was a time when Warren Buffett didn't believe in buybacks, but if you notice over the last um, 10 years, uh, the cash in his balance sheet has been building up. And at, at some point, the question is, is where do you deploy that cash? And what he's saying in terms of the cash building up in his balance sheet, I think de facto, you know, implicitly he's telling us that he has nowhere to go in terms of his investment style in uh, places to invest. 
And if you don't have anywhere to go, then cash builds up. And then ultimately, uh, if you think that your own company is undervalued relative to what it's worth, then that's when you get into the share buybacks. And so I'm looking at the numbers here. I have a chart from Whitney Tilson, who has uh, the buybacks. He's showing, starting in Q2, they ramped up. So Q2, then Q3 and Q4 were the numbers that were really big, as you were saying. And then Q1, not as big as the, the previous two quarters, but still pretty big. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, I, I think the way that you described it of you want to buy back your own stock when it is at a discount is the good way to look at it. That's the way that Warren Buffett would describe it. I think too many executives, and, and Buffett would point this out use buybacks as a tool to goose their earnings per share. I, one thinks of a company like General Electric, where they buy their company stock at, at, you know, at highs, and therefore they dilute, um, even though they, they, they temporarily uh, in, uh, decrease the number of shares, it's actually bad because they're paying way too much for their own stock. Um, I, I think in his annual letter, uh, Warren Buffett noted that he, you know, he noted that change that he really does uh, like buybacks and that he values them as a tool to increase shareholder value. I think he's seen what it can do with Apple, and he noticed a double phenomenon: how Apple is buying back its own stock, and then Berkshire owns Apple, and Berkshire buys back its own stock, and you get these compounding effects upon compounding effects. Um, but Ed, so that's Berkshire bought back a lot of its own stock, about six and a half billion. What struck me is how little it bought in other stocks. In fact, I believe it was a net seller of stocks in the first quarter. Um, if you look at the quarterly report, the value of the stocks that they hold is roughly $282 billion for the first quarter. That's up slightly from $281 billion last quarter. However, if you actually look at the cash flows and you subtract the uh, amount that was bought from the amount sold, what you actually figure out is they sold about $3.8 billion worth of stock. So this is this phenomenon, Ed, that I've been talking about, where it's almost like there are two Mr. Buffetts. You get the Mr. Buffett who goes on stage and says, never bet against America. You know, Stocks always perform bonds. And by the way, for that latter claim, he's got a lot of evidence. And he just, he's, he's a very strident bull, as, as he always has been. But then you look at the second Mr. Buffett, what, he, what he's actually doing with the balance sheet. And he remains very conservative. He was a seller of stocks. Yeah, and you know, I think we can get into whether or not his market timing knew is good. It's if it's as good as it used to be, but I think that there's a certain market timing element to it. What he's saying is, you know, I'm a value investor. I'm going to buy shares that are are, are that have high intrinsic value relative to their price, and that you know have these great moats around their businesses. But I can't find enough of them, and so on net, you know, I'm going to sell. And ultimately, I think Warren Buffett's own stock is somewhat uh, indicative of the situation, which is why he's doing the share buybacks. I'll give you an example uh, from Whitney Tilson, who ha he's gone to like 23 uh, Berkshire Hathaway uh, investor annual meetings in a row. And he did some numbers, back of the envelope numbers, in terms of how he's thinking about Buffett's uh, uh, Buffett's. Um, Price for Berkshire Hathaway. So what he said is, look, you know, I look at pre-operating income, uh, the earnings, which was 28 billion. I will uh, back out the underwriting, and then I'll add in a normalized insurance earnings because you know he doesn't want to deal with all the float and all those issues associated with uh, with the um, the the uh, insurance business. And then he comes up with 22.5 billion dollars. And then uh, per share, that's fourteen point fourteen thousand six hundred and sixty-four for the um, you know the actual business. And then he adds in the cash and cash equivalents, and voila, he gets a total share price value of four hundred seventy-three thousand seven hundred for the A shares. And the A shares are closed on Friday at four hundred twelve thousand five hundred. So, according to Whitney Tilson, just using an 11 times multiple 
for their 12-month adjusted pre-tax earnings. He's getting a, uh, a stock that's trading at a discount of 13% to intrinsic value. So you're buying Berkshire Hathaway for 11 times earnings, given Whitney Tilson's number, and you're, you have a, a you know, 13% buffer. Just think if you bought it at 15 times or 16 times earnings, what the, 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 the buffer that you have there is. So, I mean, that's a relatively conservative estimate. What it's telling you is, is that Berkshire's undervalued. Uh, and I think that's indicative of the market for companies like Berkshire. I don't know whether it's a conglomerate uh, problem, you know, because Berkshire is so, um, is so large and it's difficult to value. But irrespective, uh, it's indicative of the market that we have today. Uh, yeah, building on that point, Ed, I think it's indicative of the sectors. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway is an insurance company. They own a lot of bank stocks. They have Berkshire Hathaway Energy. They are somewhat kind of the old economy. Warren Buffett has been known for not buying tech stocks because he doesn't uh, like to buy stocks which he doesn't understand. And of course, he understands tech stocks better than 99.999% of people, but he just has an extremely high bar. Uh, of course, the exception for that being Apple. So I think that the relative underperformance of those sectors of, of energy, of financials over the past decade, or even perhaps over the past 15 years, is represented in the relative underperformance of Berkshire Hathaway to the S&P 500, if you include dividends. If you include dividends, S&P 500 has outperformed Berkshire Hathaway. Perhaps a better a benchmark would be to compare it to something like XLF, uh, the financial sector uh, um, um, ETF. Um, yeah, but but Ed, there's there's a lot there's a lot more I want to get into. So for, he sold stocks, and there was a particular moment that I thought was very good. And I, did, I noticed that uh, Whitney did notice this in his in his email. Um, how well, Buffett he put up the 20 largest companies by market cap as of March 31st uh, of this year, and it was Apple, Saudi Aramco, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook, basically showing how many companies. Um, the companies that we all know, and they're U.S. So he was to show that you know the U.S. remains a dominant force in in equity markets. Never bet against America. And he asked the audience of these twenty companies, how many of them do you think will be will remain in the top twenty in thirty years? And then he said, you know, you may say four, I may say six. Charlie may Charlie Munger's partner may have a, a bigger number, but actually, if you look. Um, at another chart, if you look at the 20 largest companies by market cap in 1989, it is really interesting because it's companies, the first four are Japanese, the Industrial Bank of Japan, Sumitomo Bank, Fuji Bank, Daiichi Kangyo Bank, and then the next one is ExxonMobil. So the American ones are ExxonMobil, General Electric, IBM, Philip Morris, the, the, the very old economies, the cigarette stocks. So none of those, none of the 20 biggest companies, Ed, that were the 20 biggest companies in 1989 are on the list now. So does that mean that in 30 years, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook, Tesla, Berkshire Hathaway, Alibaba, Johnson & Johnson, Walmart, MasterCard, uh, United Healthcare, what if none of those are on the 20 biggest companies in 30 years? Yeah, I mean, that could be the, the case. And uh, there are a lot of ways you can go with this um, that analysis is because you know, Philip Morris at one point was the biggest uh, company in America, you know, by market capitalization. Same thing with ExxonMobil at one point. Uh, and, you know, when if you think about it from an exponential age perspective, that is, is that we're entering the exponential age where network effects and, uh, you know, uh, software eating the world is the dominant theme. Then it makes a lot of sense that a lot of the companies that are there now, but that aren't technology, that aren't involved in the new world, will start to fade. Uh, and so, from that perspective, you could say that Warren Buffett is uh, is going to be behind the curve because we're entering an exponential age, and he won't be able to take advantage of that except via Apple. So then, the next thing to think about in terms of the Apple being the new Coke is to think about what he's saying in terms of what he's thinking about. Uh, the, one of the reasons that all these other companies have faded, perhaps, is uh, that they didn't have the moats. Of all of the, 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 the stocks that you just mentioned in the top five or six, how many of them have an ecosystem that is almost impregnable? Um, you know, I'm not sure about Facebook, 
uh, and why Warren Buffett doesn't think about that. Uh, I don't think that any of those companies necessarily have moats the way that Apple does. And that's one of the reasons that he, of all the technology companies that he sees, and also in terms of their multiple, uh, he's invested in Apple. So I look at Apple in terms of how he's investing in it. When he started to invest in Coke, when they had a relatively high PE ratio, I look at Apple in the same sort of way. He's saying that I'm not looking to buy stocks that have low PEs. I'm looking to buy stocks that are reasonably priced and that have uh, you know, business moats that deter competition, and Apple fits the bill for me. Ed, so Brian Blockchain, to that point, his name is Brian Blockchain, he asks, Buffett missed the tech boom last time. What does he know about tech going forwards? Yeah, so I mean, this is the, the, the million-dollar question in terms of market timing. Um, let's use tech and let's use bank stocks uh, to talk about this, Jack, because I know that you were looking at the bank stocks and you pointed out to me that uh, Buffett, he missed the run-up in banks. So uh, we'll put the tech to the side, but notice you told me just before he came on that he sold out of a lot of the bank shares. And I'm thinking, you know, in 2008, 2009, 2010, he had Goldman, he had JPM, he had Wells Fargo, which he was a longtime holder of. He had Bank of America. He was really, you know, loaded up on the bank stocks. And lo and behold, now uh, he's not. Uh, to me, this is a classic uh, market timing signal, meaning Buffett, even though he says, I'm, I'm uh, buying for the long term, he's really riding waves and saying, you know, I'm looking at these bank stocks as a sector. And even though some of them I like individually and I have for a long time, I'm just selling indiscriminately. It, first, it was Wells Fargo because, you know, th their business was imploding from an ethical perspective. Now it's all of the banks, every single one of them. I mean, what, what do the numbers look like? Tell me about uh, what he has on his balance sheet. Well, Ed, as you mentioned, in 2008, Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway put money into Goldman and got a very good deal doing so because of the dire crisis. Buffett really took advantage of those circumstances. In the crisis of 2020, Buffett did the exact opposite. He sold 84% of his Goldman in um, the first quarter. And by the second quarter, he sold all of his Goldman. So he sold all of his Goldman, took money out of Goldman, unlike in the 2008, he put money into Goldman. He sold all of his JP Morgan. He sold all of his PNC Financial. I believe he trimmed some of his um, uh, uh, BNY Mellon. The, the only stock that he remains you know, very much invested in, I don't want to say the only one, but is Bank of America. That is his, his really bulwark holding in banks. And you know, why didn't he buy more? What, well, he, what he says is, I don't want to, Berkshire can't own more than 10% because the, the regulations, you know, the SEC, the regulations, the FINRA, whatever, they, they you know, once you own, start to own more than 10% of a big bank, the regulation gets to start be very hot. And I'm sure Mr. Buffett is correct about that. But if Mr. Buffett were, was as, you know, bullish on banks as he, as he was on Apple, as he was on, you know, let's say Seize Candy to take one of his favorite uh, companies that he's ever bought, do you, do, do you really think that the 10% rule would... He wouldn't. He wouldn't go up to 11, 12, 15, 20 percent, or buy the entire bank, which you know he likes buying entire companies. So I think that Buffett has seen, you know, to, to some degree, the error in his ways. Um, and you know, just he doesn't say this, um, but perhaps he, you know, understands that that banking is an industry that is, you know, incredibly regulated, and it is subject to a lot of disruption from fintech. Now, now maybe he doesn't think that, but I'm just I'm just looking at his actions, not his words. Right. And, but, you know, the, the problem is, is that he, uh, from what you were telling me, he was selling before we had these blockbuster earnings. He was selling before we had the huge run up in the banks. Uh, as, you know, from a market timing perspective, he sold out relatively early. Um, there, you know, there are a number of reasons why that could be because he was such a large shareholder and it takes a long time to sell. So you just have to just start selling when, when in your mind you have the signal to sell. You're like, this sector. Uh, relatively speaking, is not going to come back. I'm just going to start selling. I mean, that's what he did certainly with the airlines, right? He just got out en masse. But his position in the banks is much larger. So maybe he's sold before. But it does make you question, from a timing perspective, his moves. You know, Does he still have his mojo? Has he lost it? 
and and that goes back to the whole thing about um, the tech side, which was the original question. Um, why isn't he getting into tech, uh, especially if he's getting out of banks? And you know, fintech is one of the reasons that banks are being disrupted. What's he missing? Absolutely. I, you know, one would think that the Warren Buffetts of today, the people who are maybe 30, 35 years old and are invest, very precocious investment minds, maybe they're looking at electric vehicles. They're saying, okay, uh, there's been a lot of uh, you know, price appreciation in companies like Tesla, but maybe it's Volkswagen who has the future there. That's undervalued. Maybe I want to buy a rare earth company. Maybe, maybe copper mines thought as the anti-ESG stock, the anti-ESG sector is actually the ultimate ESG sector because it, what does it take? Five pounds of, of copper to make an electric car? So they, you know, I, I don't think Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger are, are going through that process. I think that they um, you know, they are at an advanced age and they, they're sticking with what they know. They're sticking with, um, you know, their, their zone of comfort, which has been um, something that Mr. Buffett is very well known for. But, you know, it's funny. So he, Warren Buffett, he says, he's famous for saying that there are no called strikes in investing. Sort of, if you're at the plate and there's a, uh, you know, there's a swung strike when you swing and you miss, and then there's a strike when uh, you know you know what a call strike is. But in investing, there isn't. You can sit and you can see as many pitches come down, many pitches come down many, as as you like, and there are no called strikes. But it is a fact, Ed, that you know he was up at the plate for a long time, and there were a lot of fastballs right down the plate over the past years that he did not swing at, and he, you know he missed them. Right. So maybe <laughs> those were called strikes, and it it, it it makes me think about his investing style. And the exponential age, how they're at odds with one another, and it goes back to the whole Apple thing. Is is he's looking for these businesses that have moats? Uh, but when you're in an exponential age and there's lots of disruption, by definition, things are moving so quickly that you have to, if you want to take advantage, you need to be more nimble than that. You can't wait for the moat to be obvious. You have to speculate to a degree. That is, if you believe that this exponential age is a, is a lasting phenomenon and not a, a bubble a la 1999. I mean, obviously, the jury's still out, but th this is the, the dilemma that, that Buffett's in, and we're at a, a critical juncture in time to understand whether or not he's lost his mojo, whether his style of investing is still you know, fit for purpose in this particular market that we're living in. Absolutely. And there's another thing I want to draw attention to, which is Buffett talks about the Fed and the fiscal backdrop. And he paints a very interesting picture. And I don't know if you, if you saw this, but he says that on March 23rd, as you know, it was the absolute bottom in the S&P 500. And that was when confidence was at its worst. But I believe uh, what Buffett says is that that's when Jay Powell uh, went out there and basically had the Mario Draghi moment of saying, the Fed, we will do whatever it takes. And so Bu Buffett has an amazing quote. He says, on March 23rd, Fed Chair Powell took a market where Berkshire Hathaway couldn't sell bonds on a day before, and it turned into one where Carnival Cruises managed to sell bonds a day or two later. Yeah, you know uh, uh, that that's some serious power. You know, when you talk about fiscal, I I thought maybe you're going to talk about what he thinks about all this deficit spending and so forth, and also what Joe Biden's doing with taxes, which is a subject that a lot of people are talking about when they think about the markets. Because obviously, if you're going to tax corporations at a higher rate and you're going to tax uh, the rich at a higher rate, then in general, it, it could be seen as a hindrance to to bonds, or, or sorry, to equities, to the performance in equities. On that same note, it's interesting. A friend of mine uh, by the name of uh, uh, Marshall Auerbach, he wrote something recently at his website called The Scrum, which uh, he talked about. He said, you know, maybe you should just get rid of the corporation tax in, in total. Just abolish corporate taxes and impute the tax to uh, you know, f to the individual. So the individual shareholders of an organization, uh, by the percentage of tax that uh, of ownership that they have, you impute the uh, the earnings from the company to the individual shareholder. I don't know how you would do that, but ultimately the holy grail of taxation is is one where uh, there's no ability for you to play tax arbitrage, where you can't go to different countries 
and get a different tax rate. You can't go between different silos, whether it's a corporation, whether it's carried interest, whether it's earned income, it's all the same. And therefore, that's the most efficient. Uh, we're a long way away from that now. But uh, I thought I'd, I'd, I'd throw that out there as a good article to, uh, to take in. If you're one of these people who's worried about double taxation, uh, this article talks about that. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm definitely someone who has needs to hit the books on taxation before I uh, talk about it on, on camera. But I, de I definitely will be checking that one out. So, so Ed, I think that we, yeah, we've ahead. hit my eight, my eight uh, subjects. We talked about the share buybacks. We talked about the conglomeration effect, which is probably holding Berkshire down and making it uh, worth less uh, relative to if it were broken up. We talked about uh, Berkshire as a, a value investor, Apple instead of Coke, the banks. Uh, you know, we've hit all eight, Jay. Uh, yeah, I've got, I've got a few more things. You ready? Okay, so I've got uh, on inflation. That's a topic that has been a, a big worry. It's been on everyone's minds, very connected to the bond drama, which you began with. And I was fascinated by, by Warren Buffett's comments on this. This is an exact quote. We're seeing very substantial inflation. It's very interesting. People are raising prices on us. We're raising prices. And it's being accepted. Uh, take, take home building, for example. So as an economy, Really, it's red hot. He says that inflation is red hot. There's more going on, uh, a lot more going on than people would have anticipated six months ago. It keeps going, it keeps going, it keeps going. And he ta talks about how he's calling all of the managers of his business, whether it's retail, whether it's home builders, whether it's, it's you know, seize candy um, and the, the car dealerships. And he is just getting all of this data about how uh, people in the supply chain are raising prices on him. So if you own a supply chain, the pr cost of steel is going up. So in turn, what does the car dealership do? They raise the, the price of, of cars. And what do the consumer does? They buy it. So you have this you know, cycle of inflation that is running, as he says, red hot. And I think you know a lot of people put a lot of stock in economists, and, and they do great work. And then there are you know people like you and me who talk about this uh, for a living on on TV. And I'd like to think that you and I do good work. But um, but but really, Buffett is he really is at the heart and soul of all of this. Berkshire Hathaway is the largest owner of fixed assets in the country, um, and he is in touch daily with all of the different managers of his businesses. Uh, so you know, his analysis on this meant so much to me. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. You know, the, I, I still think that the $64,000 question is uh, whether or not we're going through a one time step change, or whether or not this is something that's persistent and pervasive. Uh, that seeps into the economy. I'll give you the example that I'm always thinking about because um, I, I actually, I, uh, my bicycle, which needed to be repaired, I got a new frame for it uh, because the old frame was broken, and I put I swapped over all the parts. But some of the parts I needed to uh, to get new, and you know you can't get any parts because all of the supply chains are down. A lot of the places in Asia that are manufacturing them aren't many, they're they're backlogged, and you can't find anything. If you go and try to find it secondhand, all the secondhand prices are elevated. You know, so it's either you can't get it. Uh, if you can't get it, it's at full price. And if you want to get it secondhand, it's also almost the same price as full price. There's almost no discount. So that's exactly the situation that Warren Buffett's talking about. Uh, the question is, is how long does this last? You know, my bike shop guy was telling me he gives it six to 12 months for the supply chain to clear. And then uh, once we're in 2022, mid-2022, things will be back to normal, is what he, he predicts. So if that is the case, what is the 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 impetus for inflation beyond that point? Is it just this one discrete period in time when we get a step change in prices, or is that step change going to lead to other things like 
people asking for more money over a persistent period of time? Uh, you know, is there some sort of way for this to just, you know, uh, chicken and egg its way on to the point where it spirals out of control? I haven't figured that out. I, I don't see the mechanism for that. So my sort of bogey now is that, uh, you know, my, my default is that it's a step change. It's just a one-time step change, and then it'll be over. And so people who are concerned about inflation, they are going to be disappointed when actually, really, at the end of the day, it's just a, a six to 12-month phenomenon. We'll, well, we'll find out, but that's my view. Well, definitely the Weimar crowd will be disappointed, who, who expect uh, the price of bread to double day after day after day. But Ed, I want to ask you a question. Typically, when I think of bond bears, people who think that bonds are going to go down in price, that yields will rise accordingly, typically I associate them with some sort of inflationist camp. That is that you know real yields are going to have to uh, decrease because of inflation. Inflation is eating away the principal and eating away the interest payments of the currency in which it's, it's denominated. So can, how can, can you explain your view of how you're not quite an inflationist, yet you're somewhat skeptical of bonds at this point? Yeah, so I think that uh, the supply chain problems are real and that uh, inflation is going to go up. I also think that um, the Fed is not necessarily as dovish as we might think or as, as dovish as they tell us. So if you combine the two, what it means is, is, is that the Fed is not only under pressure from uh, the inflation, but also under pressure from its own uh, relative hawkishness to do something about interest rates. And so I think that there is some upward pressure on interest rates at, at a minimum over the medium term. Uh, but when you factor in the one-time step change, uh, analysis, what it would say is, is that then you're stopped out. And there's only so far that interest rates will rise uh, anyway. But if they were to rise even further, it would actually hurt the economy. I, I don't think that the global economy can take a, a longer term rise in interest rates. If that were to occur, then we would lapse into recession. And at that point, you know, inflation would collapse, uh, you know, and we'd be back to square one. Uh, uh, yields would go down. So I don't really, I'm not one of those people who thinks that this is just a rolling stone that gathers no moss. I think ultimately uh, there's a cap to how, how far it can go. I hear the word cap, Ed. It kind of makes me think maybe Ed thinks macro is dead. <laughs> no, I think it's been like this for a long time. I think that the the global economy and certainly the U.S. economy cannot take either a large rise in interest rates or a, uh, a precipitous rise in interest rates. One of the two will always trigger uh, some sort of financial calamity because we've built up so much private debt that you know when you have these interest rates going up, then you get a, a panic and, uh, and you, you start to have defaults. And that leads to um, you know a recession, in which case uh, you start cutting interest rates, and interest rates go back down. That's that's really, if you think about it, every single cycle that we've had has been a cutting cycle, and we've gotten to the point now where we can't even cut the amount that we've needed to cut uh, since two, 1980. We've cut on average five percent basis points on the uh, on the um, short rates in the United States. And now we're at zero of having gone from 2.5% or 2%. Where, where are we going to get to in this next cycle? And are we going to get to the 5%? I would predict no, because 5% is much higher than uh, the economy can with, withstand. So I've, I think that we're really at a point where uh, rates are range bound and they're not going to go much higher than, say, 2%, uh, 2.5%. Okay, thanks for clearing that up. To that point, Prius Omega wants to ask, if inflation is a 12-month temporary thing, are we to expect a deflationary spike to undo it? In other words, is a deflationary spike necessary to uh, temper inflation once it gets started? No, you know, I think that if you think about the secular trends, the secular trends, you know, demographic. Look at the Andreas Steno Larsen. Was it? No, maybe it was uh, my my interview with uh, 
uh, David Rosenberg, when we were talking about the secular trends, once you get beyond the cyclical trends and you look at the secular trends, demographics are one of them. Uh, debt, private debt, certainly another one. Um, all of those trends are definitely telling you that there are deflationary, disinflationary um, backdrops beyond the, the 12 months. So once we get through the supply shock, then you'll, you'll be back to where we were before the pandemic. And that was a largely disinflationary, somewhat deflationary trend. Uh, so it's not that you know, there's a, a large deflationary shock. It's just that you know, a persistent sort of downward pressure on inflation. Great. Uh, Ed, as we approach a close, there are two final things from the Berkshire Hathaway shareholders meetings that actually dominated the headlines. I just didn't think that, that uh, you know, they were as important as some people thought. So I wanted to, you know, share our analysis on the other things I thought were more valuable. But now as we reach a close, two things. Number one, uh, Warren Buffett announced a successor. Uh, Greg Abel, who currently runs the non-insurance uh, businesses in in Berkshire, uh, specifically um, energy. And I think actually it was Charlie Munger, uh, um, uh, Mr. Buffett's right-hand man, who let it slip because someone asked about who's going to uh, keep on the culture. Uh, you know, um, Berkshire works so well as a conglomerate, you know, as you were talking about, Ed, and but that only works that has the right culture. And then uh, Mr. Munger said, well, Greg is going to keep up the culture. Talking about Greg Abel will take up the culture. And many astute observers took that and said, hey, it's official, or it's, un it's unofficially official. Greg Abel is going to be Warren Buffett's successor. And then I think later, uh, it, it was confirmed in a, in a conversation with Buffett. So uh, what do you think of Greg Abel as a future successor to Berkshire uh, Hathaway? Uh, he seems to be a, uh, a, as someone who knows how to manage businesses. And you know, in a conglomerate, that is important because he doesn't have specific company knowledge, but he understands how corporations run. Uh, he understands, you know, uh, balance sheets and so forth, and he's able to make sure that you know the business as a whole goes well together. You know, if you think back to 2011, David Sokol, uh, he was the heir apparent, but he got involved in some ethical problems, left the company, and and that was the end of that. And they've been searching for someone since then. And there, you know, the two vice chairmen uh, of the two, uh, w the one Greg Abel is ten years younger than the other. And I think it was either Buffett or Munger. I think it was Buffett who said that uh, you know if you are looking for someone to lead for the next twenty years, uh, you know, Greg Abel's the guy. Meaning that the other guy, I think, who's 69, really, you know, that's too old to to definitely think that 100% this guy is going to be able to lead the company the same way that uh, that uh, Warren Buffett did. Even though, of course, Buffett is as old as he is, he wants to make sure that whoever comes in can continue his legacy, keep the culture the same. And so, the 10-year younger guy, Greg Abel, he gets the nod. Yeah, Greg Abel, uh, he seems like a very intelligent person. From what I've seen when his interviews, he's very deferential to Mr. Buffett and Mr. Munger, as would anyone who would be, be in that role. Um, he seems like he will be a good steward of the Berkshire Hathaway shareholders' uh, capital, and he seems like he'll run the business as well. But Ed, one has to wonder, is he going to have those Eureka moments of aha, I've got to buy C's candy. Aha, I've got to buy Coke. Or is he, you know, what is his what is his ability as a stock picker? We saw that Berkshire Hathaway bought Barrick Gold, and generally it was a somewhat small investment, I believe, below a billion dollars. So many think that it was Greg Abel who made that purchase, and then they sold it a few quarters later. That's not really the Warren Buffett that we know of. You you have you size your bets relatively big. And you have high conviction, and you don't sell them. Um, so yeah, what what do you think that means for sort of a, a, a Berkshire 2.0 with with Greg Abel leading leading the pack? Well, it could mean that they are going to be more nimble. They're more. Uh, it's different, but obviously, for a corporation that's as large as as Berkshire is, you have to for an investment to make sense, uh, for it to make a difference, it has to be large. So that's why he's looking for large stuff because they're a large organization. And to buy it, uh, you know, uh, lock, stock, and bear, uh, and just the whole thing, 
it's much better uh, to own the entire company from a Berkshire perspective, because then they get all of the earnings themselves. They're not open to the, the market. They, you know, they're looking for businesses that are spinning off cash flow and that will remain good businesses and that will be re continue to spin off cash flow. And this is where I think Able will be able to help them. The real question is, is, is with uh, the float from the insurance business, because that's really what the insurance business is all about. It's really about uh, spinning off cash that they can then invest because, you know, you get all the money in and then you have to pay the money out, you know, years later in the insurance business. And while the money is coming in, you have to invest it. And that's where the insurance business gives Berkshire, you know, the ability to outperform uh, because then they're able to generate alpha in their stock picking portfolio. There, just like you you questioned, I also question. I, I have no idea where Greg Abel is. Maybe he'll be more nimble, but the jury's still out. Uh, it's a really large business, and uh, we don't really know how good Greg Abel is uh, in, in making large stock purchases. Absolutely, Ed. We are very uh, near, very close on the the end the end of this talk. It's been great. But final thing: Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett on Bitcoin. Uh, Charlie Munger saying, "I think I should say modestly that I think the whole damn development is disgusting and contrary to the interests of civilization, and I'll leave the criticism to others." <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I have no, I have no comments on that. I mean, uh, I, I, he uh, it's, the comment speaks for itself. Yeah, well, you see, it, it made a huge headline, but when I saw that, I was like, really, this is the, this is the front page. I mean, he called uh, Charlie Munger called Bitcoin rat poison in 2015, and obviously, uh, it, it may if it is rat poison, it's appreciated a lot in value. Um, I will say when he first was asked about Bitcoin, about Bitcoin, uh, the, the person knew they were stirring the pot because Munger is so outspoken on this. And Munger said, well, those who know me well are just waving the red flag at the bull, sort of in a, in a uh, you know, a bullfight. I will say um, that, you know, Charlie, Mr. Munger, he is 97 years old um, and uh, he, he is a bull and he has not been, uh, uh, he's not been pinned down by the matador yet. So uh, you have to respect him, even, even if you disagree with his views on Bitcoin. Let me let me uh, uh, say something in um, uh, for crypto in favor of crypto. Crypto is more than than a monetary asset. So when we talk about Bitcoin and we're talking about it as a replacement for fiat, there are all sorts of opinions, and you, we just heard Charlie Munger's opinion. But that doesn't have anything to do with with crypto, the space. Uh, you know, the whole concept of a distributed network. Being able to verify transactions and value—that's a completely different thing. It's much more expansive than just money. Absolutely. Well, with Ed, with that, Ed, um, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks so much. Yeah, good to talk to you, Jack. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.